We all need to laugh. We choose truth over facts. And now for a perpetual political protest in progress. Judge my physical mental suit, my physical as well as my mental suit fitness. Coffee time. And welcome to the Ammo Can Coffee Conservative Hour of Power and Enlightenment Salon. I'm Jason Floyd, your host, and welcome back, friends, family, patrons, members, uh, studio audience. Yay, there's uh, one clapping hand. <laughs> and uh, it's my pleasure. Um, Oh, and, and see, I'm going to do a faux pas here, Jeff. The, your last name again. Nelson. 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 And I, I even looked it up again. Just I'm terrible with names. But Jeff Nelson. Uh, Jeff Nelson has joined us today uh, by special request. Uh, I, was, I was honored to be able to listen to Jeff talk about uh, his faith and a mission that he's been called to. Um, and really, he's been called because once you hear about the calling, you're going to say, that man was called. Um, but uh, for those of you who are residents of the Kenai Peninsula, you may remember a woman named uh, Judy Ballweber. And uh, Judy uh, was a, um, she was in the medical profession here. Was it midwife or nurse certified, practitioner? Certified nurse midwife. So, yeah, yeah. So, so Judy actually helped deliver uh, my first two kids, twins, and um, and Judy was the sister of Jeff's my wife, Jeff's wife, Janelle. And so, uh, for those of you who knew Judy, she was a missionary to Ukraine, and uh, I was saddened to learn recently that she passed away after a, a battle with uh, with cancer. Yes. But um, so Jeff is back, and uh, after hearing his uh, his message on Sunday. And finding out that he was going to be coming back to the community, I asked him if he would indulge us and bring a message of hope. Because we live in uncertain times, and um, more and more people are becoming more and more survival-focused. What's going to happen when I can't buy eggs anymore, or I can't afford them, or I can't put milk in the fridge for my kids, or you know, meat's not available anymore? Um, these are all sort of scary questions. But um, Jeff had a message of hope, and so welcome to the mic, Jeff. Thank you so much, Jason. And Can you tell uh, us a little bit about, about Alaska and about your mission? All right. Well, thanks for asking me today. This is actually our 22nd anniversary of landing in Africa for our, the beginning of our ministry there. But uh, my wife grew up in Alaska. She graduated from school here in Kenai. Um, her parents spent about 25 years in Alaska as pastors here. But I was from Wisconsin, Minnesota, North Dakota. Met her at Bible school, and then we moved up here uh, in 1991. And we pastored up near Fairbanks, Denali National Park area, Healy, Alaska, for uh, seven and a half years. And that was just before going into missions to Africa. So uh, we have some connections. I love my time here in Alaska and love coming back. And Well, Healy, Healy is... Uh I don't know if you'd call that paradise or hard duty. Mm -hmm. Depends, mm -hmm. I guess, on the season. We, uh, I, when I was in college, as a little sidebar, I, I went to work for the Alaska Railroad, 
and I spent a summer camping at the KOA campground mm-hmm. in Healy mm-hmm. and working on the rails all the way up to Dunbar, just south of Fairbanks. Mm-hmm. So yeah. uh, that uh, I have fond memories of Healy. Uh, I also uh, had some car trouble there in the winter, and uh, so not so fond memories of Healy. But <laughs> so, so tell us a little bit about. I guess you pretty well unpacked the whole story, and uh, I want to just give you the freedom in this this venue to really go wherever your heart is calling you uh, to to connect with our listeners because uh, it was your message was profound. It encouraged me. And um, there's a lot of discouraging stuff on the uh, television these days. And so let's skip all that and talk about the encouraging stuff. Well, maybe part of my, the first part of my story might sound discouraging. I shared on Sunday about how that we, my wife and I both felt a call into missions, wanted to go, and we applied over a period of about 16 years and were turned down. Um, But that's all part of the good story too because in the 16 years we were pastors youth pastors church planters and in in all of that um, God was actually preparing us for the work he wanted us to do in Africa when we got to Africa finally got approved and by then we shouldn't have been we should have been turned down because we were disqualified we had too many kids according to our agency Um, I was now too old I should have been disqualified, and my wife had had cancer, so they usually don't send people that have health risks like that. But when we finally did get to go to Africa, 22 years ago today, and I was teaching in a Bible school there, um, God kind of revealed to me, well, the reason I kept you in the U.S. for all of these years is because now the students you are training have already been pastors for 8 or 10 or 12 years, some of them, And so uh, it's different than here in the U.S. Usually students go right from high school to college, but there, in order to go to Bible school and train for ministry, they wanted you to go and plant a church first. If you succeeded, then you could go to Bible school. If you failed, they figured you weren't really called. Not not really a Western model, is it? That wasn't at all. (laughs) Um, so, So when I got there and started training students that had been there 12 years or more, um... You know, I realized that God had me in the U.S. preparing me through all types of ministry experiences, good and some really painful ones, but it allowed me to be ready to train students who had been in the ministry for quite a while. So uh, I saw God's hand in that very much. Now, you use the word disqualified. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about that. What, what, what does it normally look like for you to be considered qualified to go preach the gospel in a foreign country as a missionary? Sure. Well, with our organization, which isn't probably too different than most, um, and we're with the Assemblies of God, but uh, they said you had to be younger than 35, and that was so that you could... Um, I'm, I'm disqualified. You're disqualified already. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the reason for that is they, you know, they feel like if you're going to learn new culture, learn new language, it's easier the younger you are, not, not so old. And so, so they said you, when you go the first time, you have to be younger than 35. Then they said two children, three at the most... Um, by the time, you know, the first two times we applied, we qualified for that. But when we finally applied, now we had four children. And so that was um, a disqualification as well. Um, and then the other thing was, you know, they need you to be in good health. They don't want to send a family overseas if there's going to be some real health issues that will make them come back or, or uh, stop them from doing effective ministry. So, so those three things 
uh, we qualified for the first couple of times we applied, but by the time they said yes, we should have been disqualified according to the things on paper, but God said now is the time, and, and they, they allowed us to go even with all those disqualifications. And they, and they listened. They listened. When, they, when God finally said, it's, it's time. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I, I so appreciate my, my organization and how they've been uh, support to us. So, so you know, um, I had an interesting conversation with a gentleman recently, and uh, I won't get into the nuts and bolts of it other than that uh, the conversation kind of centered around what does answered prayer look like? Mm. Sometimes the answer isn't. <laughs> The one we're looking for. Right. And sometimes it can take a long time. Right. And I think one of the things that is so important to me is that we just continue to walk in God's will. You know, I think if we would have said during the process of that 16 years, hey, you know, these people at the headquarters, they're not listening to God. I'm going to go and do something else. Uh, we could have lost out on the awesome things God did once we got to the field, plus what was God was doing while we were pastoring, you know. So just continue to be uh, in God's will. I think what it says about Peter and John, the Sanhedrin said they had been with Jesus. They were ordinary fishermen. They were unlearned men. But because they had been with Jesus, they saw something in them. Now, now give us the reference. What was the Sanhedrin doing? Okay, so this was, I think, Acts fourteen thirteen, And uh, Peter and John had been in jail because they had, by the power of Jesus, healed a lay lay man at the beautiful gate. And so the Sanhedrin was not happy about that. They threw him in jail. Now, in this verse, they were standing before them, and they were trying to tell them, you can't preach anymore in Jesus' name. Stop healing people in Jesus' name. Uh, And and they said, we're just going to do what God tells us to do. And the Sanhedrin said, well, these are unlearned, ignorant men, but they took note that they had been with Jesus. And, and I want that to be said of me as well. Mm-hmm. And really, that's, uh, if, I, if I got the right takeaway from your message, that that is the primary qualification. Yep, yep. Yeah. You, you have to be with Jesus. That's right. You know, men can disqualify us, but it's Jesus, it's God that qualifies us. And when he says yes, you know, uh, we continue to be obedient to him, and he opens the doors. Right, right. So, so what is the work that you are engaged in right now? So, um, I am the head of Africa Library Services. You know, for 16 years we were in Africa, living in Kenya, and I was overseeing a Bible school for eight of those years. And um, I took Bible school students out. We planted churches, about 22 churches. We got to actually go into unreached people groups and... Uh, God opened doors. We saw one unreached people group come off the unreached people group list. Over 5,000 people came to the Lord in a short period of time. We planted a number of churches, and now that tribe is reaching out to others. Well, a few years ago, we came back to the States, and they asked us to oversee Bible school uh, programs and especially library programs all over Africa, so that not just in one country, but now in you know many, many countries, we have over 400 Bible schools across Africa. And so my primary job is to provide libraries and library training, library resources for them. But uh, I go out and like in 2022, the first nine months, uh, we visited, uh, we took five trips. We trained uh, over 300 Bible school leaders 
from 68 Bible schools. And uh, also I go and teach master's courses on missions, missiology, and uh, trying to uh, just convey the passion I have for reaching unreached people to uh, Bible school students, leaders, uh, denominational leaders all across Africa. So that's what I'm involved in now. Now, with the conservative hour of power and enlightenment salon, we often talk about political things and thing, uh, dominant, I guess, narratives in our culture. And one of the things that we hear often, or at least I, I take note of when I hear it, is this, uh, this narrative that um, evangelism is kind of a, a colonialist uh, tool of oppression for coming in and subjugating a, a people group with, uh, with uh, knowledge and power and systems that they, they can't navigate, and then in doing so, um, take everything from them. But that's not the way that uh, your organization has worked in Africa. Uh, the, the, I was struck by the, the story you told about flying into Africa that first time and the article that you read on, on the plane. Can you tell us a little bit about how that unfolded and what the, the result was of that, that experience? Sure. Well, on the day that we, my wife and I were flying to Africa, for a, not to live there, but for a short-term missions trip to teach in a Bible school, the whole article... This was before you were qualified. Right. This was in <laughs> 1998, and we actually went in 2001. Okay. So, so as we flew over there for a short-term missions trip, I was reading this um, magazine, and the whole thing was about Kenya that day. And in there, there was an article about a man whose name was Simon. And so I was reading it, and it, he was a Maasai man. And uh, he had been out stealing cattle. Well, according to the Maasai, God gave all the cows, all the cow cattle in the world to the Maasai tribe. But the Kenyan government didn't believe that, so he was actually going out and getting Re cattle. Repatriating them. Right, and bringing them back, because <laughs> it was God's, God's will. But, but they, anyway, arrested him and put him in jail. While he was in jail, um, a man came and started preaching to him, and uh, to the others there, and he started to weep. And he thought, this man must have cast a spell on me. Why am I crying? But it was the Holy Spirit. I think God was working on his life. And so um, at the end of the man's message, he said, um, who would like to receive Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? Who would like to be born again today and follow God? And Simon, through his tears, he said, I want to receive Jesus. And so that day, Simon became born again. He asked Jesus Christ to be in charge of his life. So this Maasai man was there. And um, over the next few days and weeks, the preacher came back and kept discipling him, sharing Christ, telling him how to live for God. And when he finally got released from his uh, jail, went back home, and I'm reading all this on the article, um, the, the family, they said, well, what happened in jail? What was it like? And he started telling them, well, this man came to the jail. He was preaching. He told me about Jesus. And I was crying. And his family started to cry. And then uh, he said, I received Jesus Christ into my life, and now I'm living for him. And his family, many of his family members received Christ that day, and he planted a church among his family. Well, then uh, it says in the article, he went to another place nearby and shared with them, and they started crying, and many of them came to Christ and in another place. And by the end of the article, he had planted numerous churches, and a crying revival had broke out among the Maasai. And it wasn't a revival. Of, it wasn't crying because they were being oppressed, but 
they were finding freedom. Right. They were experiencing God's love in those services in, in the time he shared. And so, um, so I'm reading that article uh, on the airplane, and at the end of it, I am praying, and I said, Oh, God, may someday I have the privilege of training Maasai pastors for you. But I thought, you know, where did that prayer come from? You know, I mean, I, I know I read the article, but it was just like that prayer welled up within me. And uh, then we were there for one month, um, and, and while I was on the campus, I was out taking pictures of birds, and there was a particular bird, very beautiful, I got a picture of it, but I didn't know what kind it was. And so uh, there was an African student standing next to me, and I said, what kind of bird was that? And he looked at me, he looked at the bird, he looked at me again, and he said, well, I don't know what kind of bird that is, but you sure remind me of my brother. And I'm thinking, you know, what is it? And he said, well, my brother, he's always taking pictures of birds, he's got a bird book like you, a binoculars like you, and he's a guide in a national park. I said, oh, that's interesting, I'm a guide in a national park in America. And uh, I found out that this man I was talking to is Maasai. I said, oh, that's interesting. I just read an article about a man who was a Maasai. He was a pastor. And this man said, well, I'm a pastor. I said, oh, maybe you know him. His name is Simon. And he said, I am Simon. <laughs> Here I was talking to the very man I had read about on the airplane, and we were talking about birds. So anyway, I said, hey, I love the article. He said, yeah, people came from America. They took my picture. They asked me all kinds of questions, but I haven't seen the article yet. I said, well, come on back uh, to the apartment I'm staying in here on the campus, and I'll, I'll show you the article. So he came in, he, he looked at the article, and he's looking through the pictures. Oh, there's my father. There's my house. Oh, there is the first church I planted. And then he said, Jeff, would you please come and preach in my church? And so I had the privilege of going before we left Kenya and drove out into the uh, you know, uh, uh, an hour plus out of the city, see giraffes and and ostrich on the way to church. But we get there, I preach, and afterwards we have a nice meal of of lamb and sour milk and Coca-Cola. Uh, and as I'm going, he shakes my hand and he said, Jeff, would you please come back and train our Maasai pastors? And I'm thinking... Did the hair stand up on the back of your Oh, neck? man, it was like, that is the exact prayer I prayed. And, and, and uh, you know, I think the Holy Spirit was involved in that prayer. I think the Holy Spirit was involved in this question of the pastor. So you don't... I take it you don't believe in such thing as coincidence. Well, not in this case. <laughs> God was definitely working. But I'm also thinking, I'm disqualified. This is why, you know, too many kids. My wife had cancer. I'm already too old. You know, and all I said was, Simon, would you pray? Would you pray that... God would allow us to come back and train Maasai pastors. Well, we went back to the U.S., applied a third time, and this time, even though we were disqualified according to the paper, God said, it's time for these guys to go. And so they approved us to go, and we got back there, and, and, and we had the privilege. You know, when I started at the Bible school, we had about 125 students. By the time I became president, we had 330. And when I left, we had 1,764. And many of those students were Maasai. We had a privilege of training many Maasai pastors. One of my early students is now the Assistant General Superintendent of the Assemblies of God in Kenya. And so, so it was just a joy to see God fulfill all of that in the process. And you asked about the you know, colonialism of church. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that uh, our organization does, and I think others do too, not all of them, but we believe in the indigenous church principles. 
which means we do not believe that our church in the U.S. should oversee or be the uh, governing body for the churches around the world. And so when our early leaders, a missionary was for about six years, the we call him general superintendent, or you could call it president of the church. So for about six years, we served as a, a missionary served in that role. But quickly, once the church had grown and had leadership in place for districts, they said, we're going to have the election of a Kenyan general superintendent. And so... Um, so they did, a, they did a process, and in 1982, a man was elected, a Kenyan was elected as the general superintendent of the Kenya Summons of God. Now, he was disqualified as well. That's quite a story, too. You have a good memory, Jason. <laughs> well, you know, that really resonated with me because, um, you know, I had a young man here in the shop uh, who was attached to a... Um, a mission group. Mm -hmm. uh, they have a North American mission um, board, the Baptists do, mm -hmm. that uh, they actually fund missionaries for domestic missions. Mm -hmm. And so uh, there's a church planting group that was planting a church here in Soldatna. They still meet in our shop here every Tuesday night. I've got about between 50 to 100 kids in here for their youth group meetings. Mm -hmm. And um, and this young man was a college student, and he, he, uh, he had gone off to seminary. And while he was at seminary, he felt, uh, or maybe the Holy Spirit showed to him, that what was being taught at this particular religious school was, didn't align with Scripture. And so he felt some great conflict, and, and he ultimately left that seminary and came back and thought, well, maybe there's a different path for me to become... Uh, educated and ordained and, you know, because he, he's felt called to mm -hmm. the mission. Mm -hmm. But he was feeling really dejected. He was, he was depressed. He was, uh, you know, he didn't have the joy of the Lord. Right. And he was in that dry season. He was really feeling down. And, uh, and I got to see him multiple times a week. Mm -hmm. And so when I was talking to him, I just, I just asked him, I said, you know, who ultimately, you felt like he'd made the wrong decision with seminary. And I said, well, do you feel called? And he said, yes. And I said, do you know Jesus? And he says, yes. And I said, so what else is there? Mm -hmm. Because as I read the Bible, it didn't, I don't see in there where it says, you should go pay a bunch of money to go to Liberty University or whatever university you decide to go to. And that is one path to get your education. But I don't see a requirement in there that says, go to the university, get your degree, then apply to a committee of sage elders. And if they choose to let you go, you can now preach the gospel. But don't speak about it mm -hmm. until. Mm -hmm. Because ultimately, we're all witnesses. Christians right. are all Absolutely. witnesses because we've been with Jesus. Amen. That makes us the witness. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And as witnesses... The story we tell is our story. Right, right. Right? We tell it from our perspective. When you go to the university, you read all of the commentaries and talk to the great minds of theology and meet the professors and the pastors and the missionaries and the people who have all done the work, and that's very valuable. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, if you don't have your own story, then the question is, have you been with Jesus? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And if... I understood your message. If you have not been with Jesus, then you need to be. 
Right. And right. But once you've done that, you're qualified. Now, the world may tell you you're not, mm-hmm. and God may use that to reveal his timing and his plan to right. you. But ultimately, if you feel called, you have to continue to pray and pursue mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. until it's time. Right. Right. And nobody In knows path, what time it is. My path has been a very, uh, I've stayed within my organization. I've, I've grown in, in that. But, you know, you look at a guy like John the Baptist, you know, he probably wouldn't have made it in too many of our institutions. <laughs> but God used him in a mighty way. Yeah. Um, one time, so when we go into these villages, we went into a Maasai village. The name is great, Oloi Borototo. So we went into Oloi Borototo. And I always tell my students, you know, God wants to show himself strong where darkness is the strongest. And so even if you've never prayed for healing, for eyes to be opened, for demons to be cast out before, if God brings you to a place where there's somebody who needs prayer, you pray for them and believe that God will do it because God wants to show himself strong in these places. So we'd gone into Oloiboratoto to to build a tabernacle and to raise up a church and plant a church there. And we had a local pastor that had gone in a few months before us and kind of got things ready. And he probably had 15 or 20 people by this time that he had brought into, led to the Lord and brought into the church. So part of the team was building the tabernacle. And part of us were going hut to hut and sharing Jesus and inviting people to come to the, to the open air meetings and the and the, so, so as we were out, we had gone to a couple of huts, and we were on our way to a next one, and a lady came up to us, and she said, are you the people of God? And I said, well, what do you need? She said, I want somebody to come and pray for my son. He's fainting, and I'm afraid he's going to die. Over the last number of months, he keeps fainting and fainting, and uh, we've taken him to the regional hospital, and there... They've done all kinds of tests. We had to pay a lot of money. And at the end, they said there's nothing wrong with him. Nothing physically wrong with him. But when we walked out of the hospital gate and and went, he fainted again. Then we paid a cow, some animal we had to pay to a Masa healer. We took him to that one. And we we had to sacrifice our, our animal for this payment. And he said all kinds of things. He danced. He did these things. And at the end, he said, now he's okay. And he sent him home. But he's fainting again. In fact, last night, for the first time, he was even fainting. He'd stop breathing in the middle of his sleep. I had to stay awake all night because I was afraid he was going to die in his sleep. Do you guys know how to pray? Can you come and pray for my son? And so we went and we met this little boy, about maybe 10, 11 years old, Molo was his name. And uh, there were some African students with me, some American team members, and, and we laid hands on Molo and we started to pray. As we were praying, though, it was like the Holy Spirit said, Jeff, open your eyes, what's around his neck? Now, when the Holy Spirit's talking to you, it's usually not for chit-chat, you know? There's something he's trying to get across. So I opened my eyes, looked around his neck, and there was a leather string with a leather pouch tied to it. So I asked the people to stop praying, and I said uh, to the mother, what, what is this around his neck? And she said, oh, that is the charm, that is amulet that the Maasai uh, doctor gave him to ward off diseases. And I said to her, well... Mom, 
uh, we're, you've asked us to pray, and we're praying in the name of Jesus. But if Jesus heals your son, we won't know if it's this thing or Jesus. So would it be okay before we pray again if we took that off, and you burn it, and then we'll pray? So we cut it off, she burned it, and we prayed. And as we prayed, you know, the Holy Spirit was there, and, 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 and God loves to heal. God loves to deliver. And I think it's for two. One, he loves the boy. He loves the person that needs the healing or the deliverance. But he also loves those who are watching. And they become curious. Everybody in this little town of Oloi Borototo knew he was sick, that he was fainting, that he was, he was having all this trouble. So at the end of the prayer, um, I said, you know, I encourage you to come to our meetings and, and be there. And so every day, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, she was there. And she'd always bring little Molo up to the front for prayer every service. So on Friday, I asked her, I said, now, how is Molo doing? I see you bringing him for prayer every day. She goes, oh, he, since the first time you prayed, he hasn't fainted one time. He's just been perfect. I've slept every night. I said, wow, wonderful. I see you're bringing him to pray. Oh, I thought I was supposed to. Well, you can, you can keep bringing him. But I said, would you do this? On Sunday, we're going to dedicate this new tabernacle. Would you bring Molo and would you share your story with the community? And so on Sunday, she came and she shared and she said, my boy was dying. He was, we went to the hospital, they couldn't help him. We went to the Maasai doctors, they couldn't help him. Uh, but, but we asked the missionary and the people to pray. And when they prayed, he has not had a fainting sense. And then she said to the community, they saw this amulet around his neck. And they said, we won't know if it's Jesus or this thing. So let's take it off so we know if it's Jesus. And we took it off and it was only Jesus that healed my boy. And during the time we were there, about 129 people came to know Jesus. That church was planted, and uh, it went on. And I think part of the reason is because we're able to say, let us believe Jesus to do the miraculous. Let us pray and let Jesus do what Jesus did on the earth he's doing here today. And because of that, that church was planted. Now, I want to pause a minute, because uh, any time that we have a word that folks in the audience may not understand, I want to define that. And you've used the word tabernacle a number of times. And to a Christian, you know, that's part of our lexicon. It's mm -hmm. part of our, mm -hmm. our daily or our cultural, you know, word soup. We, sure. we, we know what that is. But um, uh, just doing a quick okay. Google search. And we have to not trust Google necessarily <laughs> in all things. What does it say? But it says... Uh, in biblical use, a fixed or movable habitation, typically of light construction. Uh, the second definition is a meeting place for worship used by some Protestants or Latter-day Saints, um, similar as holy place, temple, church, chapel, altar, or sanctuary. Um, and the third uh, definition is an ornamented receptacle or cabinet in which... Uh, I'm going to pronounce this wrong, it's P-Y-X, Pix or uh, Saborium containing the reserved sacrament may be placed in Catholic churches, usually on or above an altar. So let me use uh, define tabernacle like we use it in Kenya. So we, when we don't build a whole church as a mission group. What we do is we 
put up the wall, uh, put up the frame, and put a roof on. And so we call it tabernacle because it's kind of like a tent, although it's a permanent roof. So it's a metal frame with a metal roof. And the reason we do that is if we build the whole church, put the walls, the doors, the pews, everything in it, then uh, you're colonialists. We are colonialists, <laughs> and anytime. Uh, <laughs> Anytime the door comes off or the wind knocks out a window, the pastor will call us up and say, missionary, your, your door broke. But if all we do is build the roof, uh, then allow them, encourage them as a, as a local church to put the walls up and finish the building, then they have ownership in it. It becomes theirs. And so... so um, uh, we use the word tabernacle because we're not building the whole church. We're just putting a roof over them. The other thing is... So that, it is tent-like. It's in that. more like a tent, yeah. yeah, although it's permanent, but right. it's like a tent. And the other thing is what, we, what we've learned is that many times we have congregations that meet out under a tree. Huge trees. I mean, I could show you pictures. Huge trees. But until they get a permanent building, or in this case, semi-permanent structure, the community thinks they're just a fly-by-night religious gathering. But once they get land in their own permanent structure, then the community says, oh, these people are here to stay. And so the church will often double or triple quickly once they get a building. So, so we often are able to help with a tabernacle, uh, but then uh, the local church goes ahead and finishes the building and makes it a church. If you would indulge us, uh, I, another story that's really resonated and struck a nerve with me was, um, you know, uh, as the Kenya church grew and the Assembly of God sort of organized there, mm-hmm. um, and you're talking about this process of finding a, um, a new president, or right. what, what's the term? General superintendent. General yeah. superintendent. Um, they had a very Western process for identifying and selecting candidates mm-hmm. for that. But uh, the story has a twist. And, and that story was particularly interesting to me because of the longevity of the outcome. Right. And, and uh, just sort of, it's, to me, it spoke volumes about God's selection process. Can you... Tell yeah. us a little bit about that story. So um, if I could back up to a man by the name of Dale Brown, who was a, a, a construction owner. He owned a construction business in Oklahoma. He felt God calling him to Africa to be a missionary. And he went to our organization again, and they said, you're not, well, you've never been to Bible school. You haven't pastored a church, and you have seven kids. There's no way you're qualified to be a missionary. So they told him no. And, and this sounds like my organization is terrible, but he ended up going to his state organization and saying, you know what, God has blessed my business this last year. I have enough money to support myself. Can I go as a missionary from my state of Oklahoma? And they sent him. He first went to Ghana. And while he was in Ghana, he saw a vision. God lifted him up over Ghana, took him all the way across to East Africa, and he saw Kenya. And he felt like that was where God was calling him next. About the same time, I think, there was a lady in a church in a little tiny town in um, Migori, uh, not Migori, sorry, I'll think of the name, in a little tiny town in Magina, Kenya, and this, this lady, a grandmother, was praying for her children and grandchildren, and she saw a vision. There was a pit, and all kinds of African, you know, people from her country, people from her tribe, were falling down into this pit and being gone, and she's praying for them, her children, her grandchildren, and then a white man came, and he ran into the pit, and he started pulling people out. And she felt like that was God sending somebody to them to help them uh, reach their people. Well, years later, um, 
Dale Brown went back and to... And she, she was already a believer. She was point. a believer, right. right. Okay. Dale Brown went back to America after his work in Ghana. He said, I want to go to Kenya now. So, again, he came to Kenya, not qualified by the national, but the state. And he ended up coming to a place about 45 minutes from my where I lived, and then he, he would go around and try to preach. Well, he didn't receive much acceptance in the churches, but he got to this church on a Sunday night in Magina, and he started preaching there. And as he began to preach, all of a sudden, the little lady in the back, she started shouting, that's the man I saw in my vision. That's the man who came and was rescuing people out of the pit. And she told everybody in the church about her vision, waiting for this man. So, so anyway, God used him, and in that church, they started uh, just a wonderful revival, and people were being saved and, and filled with the Holy Spirit and going out and preaching, particularly some young people. One of them, one of the young people was named Peter, Nigerian, and uh, a young lady named Naomi, who later they would marry. He ended up going to Bible school, and uh, when they had their second general council of the Kenya Assemblies of God, they said, we want to send out missionaries who's willing to go to areas that are very hostile. And so Peter and Jerry and Naomi, uh, young people, they said, we'll go. So they ended up going to an uh, 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 unreached tribe at the time, and they started a church there, and pretty soon a section, many churches, and then a district. And, and so now, to your question, there was... Um, there was um, the missionary general superintendent was saying, we're going we're gonna to let you select your own general superintendent. So what we're going to do is we have now six districts. So we're going to go around and for six months each, we're going to try out one of these district superintendents and they will be the general superintendent interim for six months. And once that's finished, you guys can vote on who you want to be your general superintendent. A great plan. He wanted the indigenous church principles. He wanted the local church, the national church to be sovereign, self-supporting, self-governing, self-propagating. So they tried out this one, this district superintendent, the next one. When they came to Eldoret district, this young man, Peter, was there, and the missionaries said, you know what, you're too young. We can't have you be in this position. We need somebody with more experience. So they picked his assistant or secretary or somebody like that to, to do the practice six months. They got all finished with all of those. And uh, now they came to the General Council of 1982. And uh, they said, you know, brought the six guys up in front that had tried out. And they said, now you people get to vote on. These are the six gen district superintendents that tried out uh, for six months each. And now we're going to vote. And somebody in the audience said, uh, according to the Constitution and bylaws that you had us sign, uh, anybody who's a ordained minister could qualify to be voted on. Is that correct? Well, yes, that's correct. Well, can we nominate somebody? Well, I guess so, but these are the six we've tried out. These are the ones we've vetted. Well, I nominate Peter and Jerry, this young man who is the district superintendent, but the missionary thought was too young to serve. And so they said, okay, you can, you can nominate him. Well, you can guess who was selected. Young Peter and Jerry was selected to be the first general superintendent of the Kenya Sons of God from Kenya. And uh, he was elected in 1982. Not necessarily the choice of the missionaries, but it was, I think, God's choice. And when he took over the church, there were about 300 churches in the Kenya Assemblies of God. And uh, he passed away quite recently. He was the longest-serving 
general superintendent in the Assemblies of God in Africa, and maybe in the world at that time. He had served for 36 years as general superintendent. And from 300 churches, he had grown it to 3,600 churches and just done a fantastic job. And so, um, so I, think, I think, again, man might have said, you're qualified, you're not qualified. But God said, this is the man I see. I see his heart, and I want him to lead this church for the next 36 years. And God used him in a mighty way. And I find that encouraging because for those of, of you out there, and, and I, when I say you, I, I mean me, <laughs> that get discouraged from time to time. Um, it's easy to get lost in the woods when you don't have a fixed point. And God is that fixed point for us. He's yeah. our North Star. He is that guiding light that we know is going to remain consistent. And if everything else is, seems to be in disarray or chaos, it's not going our way, it's beneficial to just step back and take a breath, calm down, pray, and fix our eyes on God. Amen. And, and he knows what's right. Mm-hmm. He points the leaders mm-hmm. that we have. Right. And we can look at our leadership right now in the state and in the nation, and we can go, God, what are you doing? But they're appointed to a time for a purpose. Amen. And we can't see it necessarily, but we can see him. Yep. And so when we we can't discern why things are the way things are, why milk is so expensive, and why we can't maybe do as much as we used to do, and and uh, we start to have these first world problems like uh, I normally get this brand of eggs, but now I've got to buy this other brand. You know, um, I think it's beneficial to look across the ocean or even just across our state. I mean, you can look at the folks in Nome. I've lived there or Antioch. I've lived there as well. And they're not too unlike our brothers and sisters in Africa. Mm-hmm. Survival for them means something completely different than it does here in Soldatna. You know, I thought, I think it was about the time I moved to Africa, because, you know, we in America have often thought, you know, this is, government and godliness should be married, you know, we should have the, the kind of a theocracy, and that would be wonderful. But as I looked at the Bible, there were very few years in the whole history of the Bible where you know, like the David and Solomon kingdom where, where it was kind of a godly rule or maybe during Moses' time. But most of the Bible, the people in the Old Testament and the New Testament were not living under fair, uh, wonderful, godly leaders. They were mostly living under... Tyrants. Very difficult <laughs> times. But their life didn't depend on the leadership. They, they continued to serve God in spite of what was happening in in the government and in, in the world around them. Right. Now, I, I, I asked you at the beginning, uh, before we turned the record button on, <laughs> uh, if you would think about what the term conservative means to you, because oftentimes the media and uh, dominant voices in our culture create these neat little definitions but I found that oftentimes these definitions are fall drastically short of reality and that the idea of being a conservative is actually much broader than uh, what the media would like to 
um, pigeonhole us as. And, and even the word evangelical, you know, they've, they've tried to add this political connotation to the term evangelical and spin it in a oftentimes a negative light. Mm-hmm. What does being a conservative or what does conservatism look like for, for Jeff? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm a, I love history and uh, a particular, particularly early Pentecostal history. And uh, um, so when there was a man named Charles Parham who, who uh, was kind of in the whole mix of all of that was happening in the late 1800s in the ultra-conservative, ultra-evangelical church world at his time. And, you know, you can't just be in the church world, you're in the world. And uh, he began to really pray and say, God, you know, what what I saw in the New Testament, I want to see today. What what the early apostles were experiencing, I want us to experience today. And uh, he he led a small Bible school. It was kind of a, uh, it wouldn't fit into your typical institution of, of theological learning. Uh, he just said, we're going to use the Bible as the textbook and we're going to, you know, he, he taught him in the morning and then they'd be out preaching in the afternoon. It was a very practical experience. But on um, 1900, Christmas time, he, uh, he had to go preach. He, was, he had a Bible school in Topeka. I think he went to Kansas City to preach. And he gave the students an assignment. Read the Bible and see what it says is the actual... Um, what is the evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit? So he went off, came back, and uh, all of them, about 40 students, said, it looks like from the Bible the evidence is, you know, you speak in tongues if you're filled with the Holy Spirit. And I know probably a lot of your audience is not necessarily Pentecostal, but, but the point of this is um, he felt like God was going to bring all of the churches together in what Joel 2.28 said, I will pour my spirit out upon all flesh. And so so they went into a prayer meeting, and January 1st, 1901, is what we consider the beginning of the Pentecostal movement, which later included the Charismatic movement. And uh, um, he felt like God wanted to pour himself out on the whole, on the whole world. Well, it has been said today that the Pentecostal Charismatic movement is the largest move of any religious movement any time in world history. You might say, well, that's a pretty big, you know, a pretty big claim. But when you think of it, it took the Catholic Church 1900 years to go from our first member to uh, half a billion members, 500 million members, 1900 years. The Pentecostal Charismatic Movement has moved from its first member January 1st, 1901, to a half a billion members, 115 years. And so, so God is doing a tremendous thing. Um, I'm kind of like you, you know, I don't want to uh, just be a political person. I want to be a God person. I think, uh, you know, God, God loves people and He wants an eternal relationship with us. And He wants us to bring others into that relationship. That's the whole thing. Is God conservative? Well, God wants to conserve all the people He can. Is God evangelical? He wants to. He wants the word to go out because He loves people and He wants a relationship with them. Um, I, I, I suppose I could talk more politically, but I, I just love what God is doing in the world today. And I think you know God is reaching unreached people groups. God is reaching into communities, other religions that we would have never expected. Um, and a tremendous thing is happening in our world. Well, you know the 
conflict is a great catalyst for change. Yes. Right. And, yeah. and, and catalyst and change kind of mean the same thing. Mm. You know, moving, moving uh, a substance from one state to another. Mm-hmm. And so when we look at our society and we look at all of the many challenging issues that we have to face today, um, I think it is an exciting time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because when we're comfortable, who wants to move? Right. Who wants to change? Mm-hmm. If the status quo is perfectly acceptable, then there's no need to change. Right, right. And it's only through adversity that um, people are brought to a position where they might even consider change. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so um, I just want to thank you for coming into the shop. I know you're very busy. Um, what? Go ahead and tell folks the name of your ministry and... And if you wouldn't mind, give us some ways that we can reach out to you. Um, if folks want to inquire about the work that you're doing in a more uh, official capacity or they would like to donate to your, your cause, I know that you're itinerating right now and, and raising funds. Um, and these, these works don't happen without money. Amen. You know, that's Money's right. not evil. The, the love of money is that's another conversation. But, but um, money is necessary. It helps, uh, helps the wheels turn. Yep. And um, so if you could give us a website or a way to reach out to yeah. you and support your mission and learn a little bit more about it, you know, for folks on their own time. Probably one of the easiest ways to find me is Jeff Nelson on Facebook. And uh, I'm pretty active on Facebook. You can find me there. Um, otherwise, you can go to the Assembly of God uh, head page. It's ag.org. And then search missionaries for Jeff Nelson and you'll find find me there in a way to donate there as well um, but but connect with me on Facebook and then we can we can message and whatever and and uh, we can get you the information you need one of the things I'd like to do now as we uh, approach kind of our wrap-up is um, I'd like to uh, remind folks that we have a, a ministry through Ammo Can Coffee called the uh, Band of Brothers and this is an ecumenical uh, fellowship of men, 17 and older, meets every Wednesday, uh, except for when we don't meet, and that's not very often. We, we try, to, try to keep it up all through the winter. During summer, we do take a break, um, but the, anyone's invited, whether you're a believer or not a believer, this is just a, a fellowship of men who are looking for answers outside of themselves. What time on Wednesday do you meet? So we open the door at 6. Most people start showing up at 7. We give you time to get off work and go home and squeeze the kids and eat some food. And We provide uh, coffee. We don't charge anything to, to attend. Um, it is exclusively for men because we talk about men's issues. Good. And we talk about the struggles and the challenges and the, the, um, just the battle mm-hmm. that men are faced with on a daily basis. And that's why we chose the the name, Band of Brothers, um, has sort of a militaristic connotation because the Bible tells us that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. These things that are outside of the seen world, these things that are behind the scenes. Amen. And, uh, and that's, that's a difficult problem to face by yourself. Mm-hmm. If you don't have somebody in the foxhole with you, it can seem overwhelming and daunting. And so we provide the foxhole. 
<laughs> and we all pile in on Wednesday. And so um, if, you're a, if you're a young man, 17, all the way up to a senior a seasoned citizen of uh, however many years you've achieved, we uh, encourage you to come. Uh, sometimes our conversations get lively because we have folks from pretty much every denomination that believes in Christ and um, uh, present as well as uh, a few folks who haven't decided yet. Mm-hmm. I think that they, we could say they haven't decided because they're coming, even though they may outright reject God, at least verbally, um, they're still coming. And there's something here that is drawing them, and uh, the camaraderie sh- uh, that, that, that uh, we are working to build, um, and just the friendships, they have some real... Um, value Mm -hmm. and so i just want to make that plug for for the ministry um jeff if you would do us the honor you know we don't normally do this on the show but uh our audience is growing and i have no idea where this podcast is going to end up and i think we would be remiss if we didn't take the opportunity to invite people to consider asking christ to become part of their lives and um uh, if you wouldn't mind leading us out with uh, with a prayer uh, mm-hmm. that folks can can kind of think about and and maybe even join us in, Amen. Um, we don't want to miss any opportunity to share the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, and the restorative um, healing power that comes with that relationship. Amen, Jason. That's so good. You know, folks, um, God loves people. And you're listening today, God loves you, and it's not about a church right now. It's not about, you know, this political or that political. It's about God loves you and wants an eternal relationship with you. So I'm going to pray, and I'd invite you to pray with me. Dear Lord Jesus, I want you to come into my life. And if this is you, you pray this too. Come into my life and be the Lord of my life. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for dying for my sins. And I just accept your forgiveness. And I give my life to you. You be the Lord of my life from this day forward. And I will live with you forever. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. And so, you know, that's just the start. That's the first step. And what happens now is completely up to you. But I would encourage you to find like-minded people. Mm -hmm. Whether it's at church, whether it's at a coffee group or a Bible study, uh, whether it's, uh, I don't know, at the health club. You know, Jesus is where you are. And you don't have to necessarily go into a building to find Jesus because he can find you wherever you are. Yes. And his people are everywhere. And there's a reason and a plan for that. They're there to support you and lift you up and help you and educate you and encourage you to pray with you, to cry with you, um, and to connect you to a broader community of like-minded people who are looking to serve the world and lead the world through a service model. That when we sacrifice our time, our talent, our treasure, our sacred honor for one another, good things, only good things can come. It's not always going to be easy, and it might not happen in the timeline that we want it to. But God is always there. He's always watching. He's always listening. 
and he's waiting for us. Amen. You've been listening to the Ammo Can Coffee Social Club, Conservative Hour Power and Enlightenment, Enlightenment Salon. We welcome you to uh, come and check us out at ammocancoffee.ninja. Read about our story. If you'd like to become part of this community, as it's, it's as easy as signing our ledger when you walk through the door and agreeing to three basic principles in our mission statement. We hope you've enjoyed the show, and we hope that you share and like this across all your social media platforms with your friends, your family, coworkers, and maybe even some of those folks you don't like. Because who knows? Maybe they too will find salvation, Christ, and a better life. Thank you, folks. We'll talk to you again soon.